0: Hello, and welcome to episode 173 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. A warm welcome to John P., Elizabeth P., and Mohammed A. to The Modern Manager community. And welcome to all of you who are new listeners. I am so glad that you decided to give the show a try. And for all of you longtime listeners, thank you for coming back. If you haven't yet left a rating or review, I hope that you'll take one minute to click those stars or type in a comment. It will mean so much to me, and it helps other listeners discover the show. Now, today's guest is Ron Friedman. Ron is an award-winning psychologist who has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester and has consulted for political leaders, nonprofits, and many of the world's most recognized brands. Popular accounts of his research have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Globe and Mail, the Guardian, as well as magazines such as Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. Ron is also the author of Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Ron and I talk about the principles from his book, Decoding Greatness, and how we can apply them to all kinds of activities, and how managers can incorporate the lessons into their teamwork. Now here's the conversation.
1: You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer stewart
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Ron. I am really looking forward to chatting with you, and it's a pleasure to have you.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, so I've been powering through your book and there's just so much in here. So I we'll, we'll cover whatever we cover because there, there's a lot. But let's maybe just start with the premise of decoding success. So could you just give us the headline here?
2: Yeah, so the stories we've been told about success are wrong. So most of us grew up with two basic stories about how people vault to the top of their profession, whether it's being a great manager or being great at a particular industry. And those two stories concern talent and practice. So the two main stories have to do with either, number one, that Greatness comes from talent or that success comes from identifying your inner strengths and then matching that strength to a particular field. That's the first story. The second story is that greatness comes from practice. This is the idea that if you just uh, have the right practice regimen and you have enough discipline to do it for a really, really long time, that eventually you'll succeed. But what I discovered in doing the research for Decoding Greatness is that there is a third story. And it's one that people don't often talk about, but it is the path by which an astonishing number of top performers, everyone from writers and artists to inventors and entrepreneurs, have used to get to the top of their field. And that path is called reverse engineering.
0: All right. Well, first of all, this was like the place where my mind was initially blown. I was like, wait a second. I tell my kids all the time about the importance of practice. If you want to be good at anything, you want to figure it out, you have to practice, 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 practice. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I remember as a kid myself that there was so much about like figuring out what you're good at. What are you good at so you can do more of that thing? And this idea that there's a third way was just initially like, wait a second here. (laughs) like, have I been duped my whole life into thinking that I need to figure out what I'm good at and I just practice a whole bunch and that's how I will win. And now it sounds like, wait a second, no, maybe there's an alternative that, I don't know if it's easier, but at least it's an option.
2: It's definitely easier. But first, let me just say, before we get into reverse engineering, let me just say that I'm not suggesting that talent and practice don't count for anything. Sure, there is something called talent. And if you identify what you're really good at and what you can easily achieve quickly and apply that to the right field, that's gonna help you succeed. At the same time, if you wanna practice something for 10 to 15 years, that's probably gonna help you too. But what I'm challenging is that those are the only two paths. And the first, uh, there are a number of reasons why these two paths don't work. But one of the main points I make in decoding greatness is that there is a glaring problem with the formulation that practice is the way to get to the top of a field because you can't practice an idea you've never considered. And so if all you're doing is practicing in isolation, you're not going to get to the top In order to vault to the top of your profession, you need to simultaneously practice, but also identify what it is that people at the top of your field are doing so that you can start practicing those things as well.
0: All right. So that gets into reverse engineering. So why don't you explain how that works?
2: So reverse engineering simply means finding the best in your field and then working backward to figure out how they were successful. And at the same time, identifying how you can apply their strategies to your next project. So there are a wide variety of strategies for reverse engineering, and it depends on what field you're in. But let me just give you a few examples of how this happens in practice, so it doesn't feel abstract. So in the world of writing, you will often find that nonfiction authors go to the back of the book, to the bibliography section, to identify the sources that went into creating. creating the book. Chefs often order dishes to go so that they can spread out intricate sauces on white plates and parse out the ingredients using a magnifying glass. Another example is photographers who often will scan images for clues like the length of a shadow uh, behind the subject that reveal the time of day in which the photo was taken. All of these are examples of how people use a finished product and then work backward to look for clues on how it was created. So the critical thing is for all of us is don't just passively enjoy an experience but continuously push yourself to think, how was this constructed? What can I learn from this? And how does this apply to a project I'm working on?
0: I love this approach. And I feel like it's something that I have done in very narrow slivers of my life. Like when I go to an event or a conference and I'm like, oh, that was such a great experience because so many networking events and so many conferences are not great that Mm -hmm. when you go to a great one, it's like, whoa, what did they do to make this one different or special or feel like it's something I would come to again? And trying to parse that apart. And I never even thought about trying to do that in other areas of my life or other areas of my work. But I can see how that could be really powerful.
2: Yeah, and let me just add to that. Like, This is uh, super applicable to anyone who's in a workplace. So this is an approach you can use to figure out what it is that made a particular email so compelling or a memo so memorable or a particular talk that you saw. And you want to understand, hey, what did that speaker do over there? And how might I apply that to my next presentation? So it's really more of a both a mindset of curiosity, but also having the techniques. And that's what the book spells out is how do you actually apply this to your industry so that you're not just hoping that you somehow find your talent or practicing for a really, really long time, but instead consistently learning from the best in your field and applying their strategies to accelerate your success. So
0: I'm wondering if you could give us like a real life example or or a story that walks us through how someone can do that kind of reverse engineering. So if I'm sitting down and with Whatever project I'm working on or whatever colleague that I'm collaborating with, I actually know like what are the questions I'm asking and what are the ways that I'm trying to pull this apart? Because I can see it really clearly with a chef and that white plate, but I'm having a harder time imagining looking at a presentation that just went well with a client and being like, okay, how do I reverse engineer what I just did?
2: Yeah. So there are so many different strategies in the book. So let me first address your question about a story. So what's an example of someone doing this? And a great example is the fiction writer, Kurt Vonnegut, who all of us have heard of. What Kurt Vonnegut would do is that he would convert stories into pictures, and he did this to look for clues on what made the best story successful. So, what do I mean by turning uh, stories into pictures? Here's how he would do it. For every story, he would draw a graph. And on the graph, he would plot the protagonist's fortunes over time. So, in other words, how are things going for the main character? Are they good? Or are they bad? It was almost like giving a story an X-ray to better understand its structure. And when Vonnegut did this, what he discovered is two fascinating things. One is that the vast majority of stories and books and films and theater, they fit neatly into one of six ba- basic story arcs. So most of the stories that we, you know, Netflix has thousands of stories. Vonnegut says, forget that. There's six. There's six basic stories that those movies are telling. And the other thing that he found while doing this is that many of the stories we absolutely love, the kinds that have been told for generations, are basically the same story told with different characters. So for example, he compares Cinderella against Annie. And what he finds is that they share a remarkable degree of overlap. Both of them start with a hero in trouble. So Cinderella is being abused by her stepmother and stepsisters. And Annie is an orphan. And then the hero is rescued. Cinderella goes to the ball. Annie goes uh, to Daddy Warbuck's house. Then something bad happens and they revert back to Dire Straits. So Annie finds out she's been kidnapped by people pretending to be her parents. The clock starts midnight. Cinderella's back in her uh, stepmother's home, until finally they're both saved for good and live happily ever after. They're basically the same story, and you would never know, know that watching those movies on uh, Disney Disney Plus or Netflix, wherever they're on. But if you take a step back and you look at what's the overall structure, you see there's a remarkable degree of overlap. So how do you apply this to your thing? How do you apply this to like you, the example you just gave, a really well done presentation? And here I want to give you a specific tool that you can use, and it's called reverse outlining. Now, everyone's heard of outlining. Outlining just means bullet pointing the points you intend to put in your finished piece, whether it be an article or uh, a presentation. A reverse outline is taking, some, uh, taking a finished work and then working backwards to create the outline that would have been used to deliver that paper or that speech. And so you can do this for someone else's finished product instead of just your own. So in the example you just asked about, which is that presentation, I can take somebody else's presentation and then reduce it down to a uh, to an outline. And that outline then gives me a format or a structure for creating a talk. In other words, I can take a reverse outline and turn it into a template. And that's really powerful because now if I need to write a talk that is inspired by someone else's structure, I can do that really easily without having to stare at a blank page. And in fact, in in Decoding Greatness, one of the things I do is I reverse engineer the most popular TED talk of all time. And I show you how you can reverse outline it and then turn it into a template.
0: That's amazing. And I love this tool and this concept of reverse engineering, reverse outlining. And is it enough to do it just once? Like you just take the best and reverse outline that thing? Or do you have to do this for like three or five or a hundred to be able to actually hit on something useful?
2: So that's a great question. So I would say that, first of all, the fact that you if you did even one, you are like light years ahead of where you would have been if you were just staring at a blank page. It's so much easier once you have an understanding of what it is that's working in someone else's uh, presentation in order to get started. So imagine, for example, if you got invited to a wedding and you had to make the the uh, maid of honor speech, that would be intimidating. But what if you took three or four or five speeches that you considered powerful, you found them on YouTube, and then you reverse outline them. Now you can see what's happening. There's an anecdote at the beginning, there is best wishes in the middle, whatever the case may be, but you already have something to work on. So the question of how many do you actually need really depends on you and and the demands of your particular execution. I would say that Chances are you're probably not going to get it in one because there are so many factors that go into making a particular experience successful. There's the structure of the talk or the presentation, but there's also the person delivering it, their personality, their speaking style, the expectations of the audience, the particular setting. And also, there's something to be said for the fact that audience expectations shift with time. So, I give the example in Decoding Greatness of this popular TED talk. And I, give, I also give the disclaimer that if you were to use that exact structure, your talk would probably be considered derivative because so many people have seen that particular example and audience expectations shift with time. So the thing that Sir Ken Robinson, who delivered that popular TED talk, did 10 years ago, by now is no longer considered very original. At the time, it was super original. So... What I would urge anyone to do if they're looking to reverse engineer examples and then apply them to their work is, is to do exactly what you suggested, which is to reverse engineer at least a few, and then identify the elements that feel most authentic to you. Because that issue of authenticity is really critical. If you just borrow somebody else's formula, you'll probably do better than if you just you know, started with, with from scratch and had no framework to work with, but even better if you find a series of examples and then combine them because then your unique combination makes your delivery novel.
0: Well, and so let's talk about this for a second because it can feel a little weird like you're copying or you're replicating. And it's it sounds like that having those structures just gives you a blueprint. So mm-hmm. you're not really copying. You're being inspired by, or you're kind of following a structure, but that ultimately it's your take and it's your job to figure out what's useful and to like put your own content, your own spin on it.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And I would say that if you are copying, you're probably not going to be as successful as the person you're copying, because as I mentioned, they have a unique personality and unique knowledge and unique uh, delivery mechanisms that you probably don't. So if you try to, for example, saw Sebastian Maniscalco's latest comedy special on Netflix, I tried to do that. I would not do particularly well because I'm not as funny as he is. I don't have the phys- physicality in my humor, whereas he's really nailed that. So it's a combination of structure, but also the person delivering it. And so for me, I would need to find somebody who's maybe more aligned with the way that I speak in order for that model to, to be incorporated. So it's it's about finding the right model, but also modifying their formula because if all you're doing is copying... Audiences probably won't feel like you're particularly exceptional. So I give the example in the book about Twilight and that story of a a teenage girl who falls in love with a vampire. And when that book came out, there were so many vampire copycats that followed suit because the book was so successful. And most of them did not succeed. And it was because they were considered derivative. People knew the formula. They knew what to expect. And they didn't consider them especially novel or, or unique. But then there was an iteration on that formula and what did succeed? It was Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. So it was like taking that successful formula, but spinning it ever so slightly to make it a little bit unique. And that's what you need to do is you need to figure out what's working in someone else's formula, but then ask yourself, how do I modify this just enough so that A, it works for me, but also allows me to be creative.
0: All right. So now I'm thinking about this in a team context. So is this something that I do as an individual once I've identified whatever it is that I am trying to figure out how to be successful with? Or is there a role for doing these kinds of activities with your team where you say, okay, we have this project ahead of us. We're going to use some of these techniques to figure out how to reverse engineer something so that our project can be successful.
2: You know, one of the examples I give in the book of modifying a successful formula is changing the constitution of your team. So, in other words, this is actually an example right out of the way that Marvel presents movies. If you think about the Marvel approach to filmmaking, there's a formula at play. I don't know how many Marvel movies you've seen, but there's there's definitely a formula where at the beginning there's a there's a there's a person who finds out they have special powers. Then they need to get the powers under control. Usually, they're paired with a sidekick, and that sidekick is usually smarter than they are, but not as physically gifted. There's a lot of sarcasm and and quips delivered at moments when the characters are in mortal danger. There's a CGI-fueled finale. And then there's a trailer of a future Marvel film. Now, it sounds pretty formulaic when you hear it laid out like that. So the question is, how do they make these movies so successful? They continue to be successful, not just with fans, but also with critics. And it's basically the same movie every time. And this is research out of INSEAD, which is a French business school. And what they found is that one of the things that Marvel does to keep their movies fresh is they... Rely on a director, they hire a director who's never, who whose experience comes from outside the superhero film industry. So they they call this inexperienced experience. It's a team member who has experience in a different field, and their experience in a different field modifies the formula just enough to make it feel fresh from movie to movie. So. If an example I use in the book is the is the movie Thor. If you remember the first Thors, I don't know if you've seen these movies, but if you saw the first few Thors, they were pretty dark and they were pretty serious. And then the newer movies, the newer versions of Thor are very funny. And it's because the former were directed by Game of Thrones alumnus and then uh, Game of Thrones alumnus. And then the, the, the latter, the newer movies are directed by an improv comic. And The fact that they're bringing in a teammate whose experience lies outside the field enables them to keep the formula fresh. So to make that applicable here, if you identify... A formula that you think might be useful for your team. Have someone come in who perhaps hasn't applied, uh, who, who hasn't worked with you on that project before and get their feedback and get their input. And th- their contribution often will modify the successful formula just enough to make your approach feel unique. And beyond that, it's not just looking at people in your industry. Another way of modifying your formula or your approach is to look at what people in other industries are doing. So. In the case of, uh, let's say, it, it's a team of people who are delivering a presentation. What you might want to look at is how other industries deliver their presentations. In other, so you may not. Let's say you're in a marketing field. You might want to look at how people outside of marketing are delivering their presentations, and often that will give you an idea that you can import into your field that makes you a little bit different.
0: Oh my gosh. You just said so many things I want to, I want to jump on here. So, <laughs> Sorry, so, first, yeah.
2: well,
0: so my husband and my daughter are watching all the Marvel movies in order. Mm. And I am, I am not part of that group. So oh, I, I, <laughs> I know you're inspiring me to actually go, go make them let me in and, and watch it with them. But also this idea of, you know, having this experienced inexperience. my husband used to be an artist and he would always pick up new materials. I'd be like, are you going to like, You know, look up any videos on how to use that. And he's like, no, the fact that I don't know how to use this is exactly Mm -mm. why I'm picking it up. Like, I'm an artist, I have experience, but I want to use this material and I don't want to be bound or limited in my thinking based on how other people have told me this material is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And he always ended up making these really incredible sculptures because. He didn't care what was supposed to be done with that material. He used it the way that he wanted to use it. Mm-hmm. So this idea of, like, of taking outside expertise and bringing it into the mix really resonates for me. And, and it also does this great play on the fact that teams that have diversity in them tend to be stronger, better problem solvers, more creative ideas because you're bringing in all of those unique and unusual and different ways of thinking.
2: Exactly right. And I'll give you a story that I think really uh, illustrates this point uh, strongly. And it's the story of how Barack Obama became a successful politician. Now, when he first entered politics, not a lot of people know this, but he was not successful out of the gate. In fact, he got trounced his first race for Congress. And The problem was, if you could believe it, he was a terrible speaker. He was a law school professor and he was used to lecturing students and voters didn't appreciate being lectured to and they let him know at the ballot. And so for a while, Obama considered leaving politics, until he noticed the way that pastor delivered sermons at church. And he applied that same approach to his speeches. So when he came back, he started telling more stories. He was modulating his tone. He was using repetition to drive home points. And he completely transformed his approach as a speaker. And the rest, of course, is history. And what that story teaches us is that the quickest path to success isn't finding your talent. Obama didn't go and like you know, into the wilderness to search for his talent. And he also didn't practice for 10,000 hours. Instead, he identified a strategy that was working in a different field and he imported it into his own. And regardless of what you think of Obama or his political views, that approach is one that we can all use to elevate our performance. It's about reverse engineering what's happening in a different field and then thinking about what are the ingredients here and how might I apply this to my thing to become just a little bit better.
0: Well, and that's such a great example of a behavior change, right? So it's not about the product, but it's actually about how you show up. And that's something that I think managers all around can do is look at how other managers who they really respect, like what are they doing? And then how can I emulate that? How can I incorporate that into my style, my approach, my way of showing up as a manager?
2: Exactly right. And one of the best strategies I can give you to get started on this is to become a collector. Now, when we think about collections, we tend to think about physical objects. We think about things like wine or stamps or artwork, but that definition is too narrow. Collections can be anything that you encounter or experience that you want to come back to and revisit. So I can tell you that I know a whole bunch of copywriters they collect headlines. I know designers and those designers collect logos. I'm a writer, so I collect stories. I collect academic articles. I collect words that I consider powerful that get me to sit up and pay attention. And then when it's time for me to start writing, I have something to turn to, to look at, to remind me of how to think big. And in the case of anyone listening to this, if you're a manager, you want to be a little bit better. When you when you encounter a well-written email, that can go in your collection under well-written emails, a a, a well-done speech, or again, a a memo. All of those examples can be placed in your collection. It could be just as simple as a Google Doc. And then when it's time for you to write your next well-written email or your next persuasive memo, you can look at that collection and then compare the items in there against the items that didn't make your collection. So it's a little bit like playing spot the difference, that game we all played as kids where you compare images side by side and you look for discrepancies. That's what you're doing here. But for knowledge examples, right? So memos or emails, look at what's different between that well-written email versus the one that wasn't. And then by identifying what differentiates the extraordinary examples against just plain ordinary examples, now you can't help but identify the ingredients that make it unique and successful.
0: I mean, this makes so much sense. And it's so hard for us to just keep all of that stuff in our brains and be like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to remember. And I do this all the time. I'm guilty of it myself. I'm saying like, okay, I'm going to remember that. So that next time, and of course, like our brains are are good for having ideas, not holding ideas. Yep. So having a way of organizing the things that you want to keep and hold on to, are there any tips or practices you have for how to store those things, how to build your collection in a way that it becomes accessible and not just like, the box that ends up in the attic that nobody wants to dig through?
2: You know what? I'm so glad you asked that because I, a lot of times I'll hear creativity people talk about a commonplace book. And that commonplace book feels to me like what you just described, which is the box in the attic that no one wants to go through because it's not organized in a particular way. And so here, what I would urge you to do, and this is something that is simple that you can just attach to your Chrome browser, is just create bookmarks by categories. So well-written website, well, well-executed website, that gets bookmarked and then it gets organized under that folder of Websites, then you've got stuff for marketing materials, emails, you can take screenshots, or you can bookmark them as well. And so for me personally, it's a combination of bookmarks and Google Docs. And Google Docs are another easy way as long as you organize them well. And so I for me, I will bookmark the Google Docs and that becomes my like best of and and you know as we're talking about managers and what how managers can help their team improve this is a practice that you can incorporate team wide it's not it doesn't have to be just be great examples that you've selected for yourself the team can contribute to those great examples and you can create a collection for the best of the best within your team so what are some examples of well-written proposals or presentations that people should look for when they want to create a new one. And so you want to designate the ones that people have found to be especially impactful and then create a resource for your team so that they can visit those examples and study from them.
0: I love that. I would just throw in a couple other things too. You could do this with meeting designs. So if you have really good productive meetings, analyzing what worked and then capturing those as future meeting design options or you know, pretty much any kind of things. I love templates. So anything where you can I think now reverse engineer it into a template and say, okay, how can we reuse this template to make our lives easier and our work more efficient?
2: Let's do it. I love those examples. And really it comes down to curate, analyze, templatize. Those are the three steps. So you want to curate the best examples, analyze them to figure out what makes them unique, and then turn them into templates so that the next time you're writing a proposal, you're just basically filling out a Mad Libs instead of starting from scratch.
0: Amazing. And I just started a new system for myself that, is capturing ideas out of books because I read so much and I can never remember everything. And even though I highlight, like it's, I never go back in. And so now I'm starting capturing quotes and creating these like one pages for each of the books I read that has like the key ideas and the main quotes that I want to remember. And already it has been so helpful to go back and look through those and say, oh yeah, now these ideas are really accessible because I never pull the book off my shelf and yeah. go back and reread it.
2: That's super smart. And I can tell you, I have a client who does this, a very similar practice. And he looks at his um, his book of excerpts of the things that he wanted to remember, the quotes and the great insights before he goes into a client meeting. And that inspires him to think big and like Connect the dots between some of those great ideas, and what how enables him to just sound so much smarter because he's able to just pull from all of these great insights of books he's read. It just makes him seem really, really knowledgeable, and also raises his confidence.
0: Oh my gosh, I have all these ideas of like, oh, you should make one that's like all on this topic. Like, so when I have to go in and like give give feedback to my team member, I could pull all the best things from all the books on feedback Mm. I've ever read into a one pager. read that right before i go in oh my gosh now now you're setting me down a whole new path of of things i want to do all right but unfortunately we're running out of time in this show it's not about me discovering new things that i want to do it's about (laughs) learning from you so ryan can you tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person so fantastic
2: well what i can tell you is in in terms of I, i used to be an employee working within an organization and one of the things that you will find is that people who are really good entrepreneurs. I don't know if this is true for you, uh, maybe, but one of the things I have found is that many of the characteristics that make you successful as an entrepreneur make you a terrible, terrible employee. <laughs> and that involves continuously questioning and trying to come up with new ways. Whereas a good employee often is someone who is good at executing on, on a system that's already been created. So I've had plenty of experiences with managers that did not work out for me. And I think that you can actually, now that I, I am a manager, I think that there is so, so much you can learn from those bad managerial experiences that you've had by identifying what it is that that manager did that you would have done differently and keep being mindful of those. So I actually think I've learned more from bad managers than I have from good managers, which isn't to say I haven't had good managers. I have. uh, I think back to my experience in graduate school and I had some terrific mentors. And one of the things that they, I think, did really, really well is that they expressed interest in me as a person, and that helped me feel valued. So that's a critical thing and I think something sometimes as managers we are so focused on getting the job done that we forget that the people we work with are human and as humans they all have a basic human psychological need for feeling connected to others. and so that's that's the thing that I took away from those positive experiences but i I do really truly do feel like I've, I've learned more from the negative experiences and I think that's Help me become a better manager as a result.
0: Uh, always opportunities to learn, of course. And where can people get a copy of your book and keep up with your work?
2: The best place to find Decoding Greatness is obviously it's available on all bookstores, but if you go to decodinggreatnessbook.com, there's a really nice opportunity there to get a free course on how to start applying many of the strategies we've discussed today on the podcast. And so if you go to Decoding Greatness Book, you submit your receipt from your favorite bookstore and you will get the course for free. And you can find out more about me at ronfriedmanphd.com or at my company website, ignite80.com. And the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because More than 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so the mission of Ignite 80 is to teach leaders science-based strategies for creating great workplaces.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing all of these incredible insights and actions. I am so energized to go off and and apply all of this in my work. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been great. Ron has
0: generously offered five copies of his book, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success, as a guest bonus. To get one of these copies, you must be a member of The Modern Manager. Head on over to themodernmanager.com join. And then after you've subscribed, check out all the guest bonuses, because there are a number of free books available, downloadable guides, free online courses, and more that you get access to the instant that you join. Plus, if you work for a government or non-profit agency, you get 20% off of any membership level. All the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.
1: Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit Meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at maymeks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.